As you get older, you can revisit your personal and professional journey and find these themes, threads, even ironies. Here's an irony for you. As a kid, I wanted to play Little League Baseball so badly to get on that field with the boys in my class. I was a very good infielder, I'm not going to lie, better than the kids on the field. But it was not to be. At that time, it just wasn't an option for a girl to play Little League. And so I was my dad's right hand. He was the coach every kid wishes he had. Supportive, motivating, and he didn't play for trophies. He played for fun, and he made sure every kid got into the game. Oh, the irony that after being on a number of professional fields, here I am today, a coach. I love coaching, and because Jim Gary showed me the ropes, I like to think I'm pretty good at it. I coach nonprofit CEOs through the lens of a former player. I've been a CEO, a board leader, a donor, and a volunteer. I've been in my client's shoes, and it enables me to offer actionable advice and moral support in equal measure. I believe everyone should have a coach, an honest broker, a person who asks good questions and challenges you to be your very best. A coach with no hidden agenda, no politics, and a good one will have suggestions for you to consider, be a compassionate truth teller, and encourage you to take care of yourself. At least that's what I think. But I thought you'd like to know what other coaches have to say about coaching. And so today, you're going to hear from two with two different styles and approaches. That said, my job is to work out the universal themes. What are the different approaches? What are the universal attributes? Is everyone coachable? What kind of expectations should you have of a coach? How do you know the engagement has been successful? Should I stop asking these questions rhetorically and just start asking them to my guests? Yeah, let's do that. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Darian Rodriguez-Hayman is an accomplished fundraiser, nonprofit consultant, public speaker, and best-selling author. He began his life's work helping people help during his five-year tenure as the executive director of the Craigslist Foundation after which he wrote Nonprofit Fundraising 101 and edited Nonprofit Management 101, in addition to leading NUMI Foundation and co-founding Gender Smart, an effort to funnel billions to women-led and serving businesses. He is a champion of both racial and gender equity, and he just recently completed his board service at International Planned Parenthood Federation. My other guest is Laura Zelke. Laura is a successful entrepreneur and fierce advocate for small nonprofit organizations. A certified life coach, Laura works with leaders to get out of their own way and share their unique gifts in the world, unapologetically, fully engaged, comfortable in their own skin. Laura is the former director of online learning and innovation at Joan Gary's Nonprofit Leadership Lab. I know her, where she served Woo-hoo! thousands of founders, <laughs> executive directors, and board members. She has privately coached a number of them through tense transitions, sticky situations, and unexpected challenges. Last year, Laura earned her certification as a life coach 
from Brooke Castillo's world-renowned Life Coach School, and she has recently launched a new coaching program called My Living Tapestry. So first off, Darian, Laura, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Joan. So exciting to be here. (laughs) So Darian, let's start with you. Tell me about your coaching practice. How'd you find your way to it? Tell me about the ideal coaching client for you. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me here. Really excited to join you. And I, I think for me, you know, when I really dove in the deep end of the sort of nonprofit management pool, it was during my tenure at Craigslist Foundation where I started a, a program, a conference called Nonprofit Bootcamp. And it was all about equipping emerging leaders for social change with the tools that they needed to really, you know, impact the world. And what I discovered in that process was a couple things. Number one, that there's a lot of sort of like highfalutin abstract concepts and theories out there, but not enough tactical, practical tips and tools. Do this, don't do that. And then in general, the nonprofit sector has a lot of people that are sort of reinventing the wheel. And so being able to talk to someone who's got the answer key and can give you really, you know, plain advice is something that a lot of leaders in the space crave, especially as it relates to the two biggest sources of frustration for executive directors, which are fundraising and boards. You know, I never would have guessed that those were going to be the two you'd mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's what comes up in every survey, every report. And so that's ultimately what I've, you know, devoted my career to is sort of developing expertise in those areas and being able to share these tactical, practical tips and tools, whether that's through my books, whether that's through conferences I organize, my consulting practice or, or coaching. And so to answer the second part of the question about who's the ideal client, I suppose it's someone who's really open to that kind of direct, plain advice, who's willing to take it into consideration and put it into practice. I think in the intro, you mentioned this idea of actionable advice. And so people who really appreciate that, as opposed to more of maybe a thought partner or a sounding board, they're looking for for clear direction. And just so listeners are clear, your primary sort of avatar is a nonprofit leader, largely staff leader. Yeah, typically I work directly with executive directors and CEOs of nonprofits. I do also work with impact investors, philanthropists, mission-led CEOs, with boards, with some staffers, especially development directors. But typically I, I work directly with an executive director. Excellent. So, Laura, let's turn to you. Let me ask you the same question. Tell me about your coaching practice. How did you find your way to it? And talk a little bit about the ideal coaching client. Sure. So last year, as you know, most people don't know, but you know, I was working on a really big project for the nonprofit leadership lab behind the scenes. And as part of it, I really wanted to see how a specific coaching program was structured on the back end. And so I took the plunge last April and enrolled in the Life Coach School, Brooke Castillo's Life Coach School, and really got a great understanding of how they have their program set up, but also I became a certified life coach. And the reason that I chose their school is because I believe in their approach, which is actually very different from what Darian just described. So my approach is to create a psychologically safe environment where clients can kind of unload their minds 
and then in return, receive honest perspective. So my coaching philosophy kind of aligns with what you teach, Joan, what Brene Brown teaches and other leadership gurus that I've studied, but it's never about what I think the client should do. Instead, I hold a neutral space where we look at their thoughts and emotions and kind of examine them, unravel it, and come to an understanding of pulling out of them what they think they need to do. So it is it is a really different kind of coaching. For me, my ideal client, of course, is someone who is serving in the nonprofit sector. I've spent, as you mentioned in the intro, the last six years serving nonprofit leaders in the nonprofit leadership lab. I've coached a number of our members through the years, but now that I'm certified, I have a more structured process. And I'd say that probably ideally I would work with founders or executive directors of small nonprofits. And then if they have someone on their team who wants coaching or needs it and is open to being coached, that that would also be a really good fit. Awesome. So very, it sounds like, quite different. Really different. Although I suspect there are some universal themes. We'll try to we'll try to pull them out. Now, I have absolutely no formal training as a coach. Although I am a certified mediator, which I actually think brings me a, a real added value because oftentimes my clients are contending with some kind of conflict. But Darian, you also you're you're in my you're in my school of of coaching, right? The, Very the uh, true. Sort of, Right, as I've done, I've I've been there, I've done that, I've been in your shoes. Let me see if I can offer you some advice. Yeah. Did it ever cross yeah. your Did it ever cross your mind to get some kind of training? You know, not really. I think for a specific reason. Like it, to, to your point, like it's it's the school of hard knocks. It's you know through trial and error and experience as not only an executive director and a nonprofit staffer, but as a board member, board chair, coach, consultant. And so I've seen things from different angles. And what I've seen is very often nonprofits struggle with the same exact challenges. Like I identified a few tools, for example, that help nonprofit boards embrace fundraising and lean into that. And it's amazing how frequently those tools are relevant. And we all sort of are are stepping into the same pitfalls. You know, I, I think for me, I did consider some formal coaching training when I was diving more into this work with nonprofit leaders. And I think the thing that kept me away from it is, and it may be the fact that I'm based here in California, where a lot of the professional coaches that I've worked with or come across have a a specific approach to coaching where it's, I think, you know, my sense is it's rooted in a a fundamental premise, almost like psychotherapy, where, where there's this notion that you have all the answers you need inside of you. And my job as a coach is to ask questions and tease those out and help you get clarity and I'm, you know, much more from like the, what I think of as like the East Coast style of coaching, which is like, no, I've been down this road before. I know where the potholes are and I'm going to point them out to you. And you might not agree with what I say. And of course, you know, it's your prerogative to make your own decisions, but you're never going to wonder what I'm thinking or what I would do. So that's kind of, you know, I, I think the the style and the reason why that formal training hasn't been as appealing. So I, I, I know I'm going to ask Laura to jump in here in one second. I also considered getting training, but I was no one ever asked me if I had any actually. <laughs> and and so I thought to myself I'm not being asked and I looked at several curricula and I thought I and I'm not sure that this is as relevant to me as 
the kind of, you know, my, my experience, et cetera. So when you learn, well, learn a particular approach, it's useful to have the coaching. And now I want to go back because I think Laura grew up on the West Coast, so maybe her approach is more West Coast-based, and I wanted you to respond to what Darian said. I was la- I was laughing in my head. I, I wasn't muted, so I was holding it in. But when you said that maybe that's a West Coast approach, I was born, raised, and educated in California, and so maybe that is. I, I don't know if it's if it's a coastal thing. The the woman who created the program is in Texas, so <laughs> make of that what you will. But the type of coaching I do is called causal coaching. And it's it's a little like what you described, Darian. So for me, I'm not interested in treating the symptoms of pain or shortcomings. I actually want to help my clients uncover the root cause of their pain and understand it and then help them make room for new seeds of success and fulfillment. And personally, I've been on my own DEI journey, diversity, equity, and inclusion journey for many years. And I'm very aware of my whiteness and how this impacts my own outlook. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really like causal coaching is because I'm not here to give advice, especially to someone whose lived experience is so different from my own. So what I do is I I listen I offer objective observations. I ask really good questions and kind of help them take back the agency that they have over their own lives. Okay, I'm going back to you, Darian. Sure. Um, do you do some of that in your coaching? Because I, I, I may jump in here too, is by giving practical advice based on your own experience, mm. does that preclude the ability for you to actually give them some agency as Laura describes? I think yes and no. I mean, I I don't quite frankly do a lot of what Laura was just describing. I'm a firm believer, especially those working in the nonprofit sector, devoting their lives to social impact. Like I'm all about tearing down walls. So I will talk to my clients about personal challenges, relationship, you know, like we'll cover all kinds of stuff. But in general, I think that the thing for me, and again, this goes back to when I was first diving into the sector and talking with a lot of different leaders to figure out where the gaps were and what was needed. Really, what I found was, uh, you know, again, going back to this notion of actionable advice that you mentioned in the intro, I find that there's a lot of resources out there, whether it's books, conferences, coaches, et cetera, that help inspire leaders. And for me, my interest is not to inspire, it's to inspire to action. Mm-hmm. What can you do differently, better, that will enable you to better advance your cause, especially, you know, as it relates to tactical things like fundraising, managing your board, et cetera. And I think from my experience, having started nonprofits out of my bedroom, having led them and joined them, et cetera, like all the leaders I know are quite busy. They're struggling to deal with insufficient resources and a, and a huge need. So they're having to make really tough decisions and they're, they're looking for tips. They're looking for tools. And I, I take Laura's point that like the big picture clarity and, and asking and answering those big questions of, you know, why am I here? You know, what, what does success look like? Those are also really important. I've taken three, six month sabbaticals to reflect on those kinds of big questions myself. So I, I do some of that, but it's it's a very small part of what I do. And I think it kind of happens organically and in the process of problem solving and kind of getting in the trenches with my clients and helping to move forward. 
So I stopped listening to you after you said you took, had taken three six-month sabbaticals, but I'm sure <laughs> that whatever you said after that was really good. I want to ask a question because maybe this will help reveal the distinction or conversely the, the thread that binds. When a client has completed an engagement with you, and let's start with Laura, how will they know it was a successful engagement? Well, they, because they're taking action that they were not taking before. They'll, they have, they get clarity around what needs to be done and then they take action on it. And it's pretty phenomenal, actually. It's pretty powerful. So you just answered in a way that sounds like something that Darian would say. So I'm, I guess maybe help me understand that, right? Is the distinction that your clients, through the process you go through as a life coach, reach mm -hmm. those conclusions about those actions on their own, and that Darian is more advice-driven and prescriptive is a harsh word, but that's the one that comes to mind. Well, I can only speak for my approach, and yeah, that's it. You know, if you think about it, we all know way more than we give ourselves credit for. And so through the process of getting clarity and really looking, you know, think about all the people that we talk to every day in the nonprofit leadership lab about imposter syndrome and the struggles that they're having, you know, with uh, maybe it's an ED and a board or something like that. A lot of times it's how they're thinking about it that's actually the, the cause of the problem. And if we can just work on that and how they're thinking about it and how they're thinking about their own situation in their own power, we can then create new results. It's like getting getting out. Of, I, I said, you know, my description, getting out of your own way is really what it's about. And I've also coached, you know, an executive director who who needs to, who wants to retire in a few years, but just really felt like that is not even an option. You know, forget sabbaticals. This is retirement, right? right. And feeling like that's not even an option. And teasing that out and really getting the thoughts out. And, and again, I want to I want to just clarify, this isn't like counseling. It's yeah. not therapy. It's actually a tool. There's a tool that I use. It's something that walks you through the process of really uncovering the thoughts that are holding you back. And then addressing it, like, let's just look at it together. And, you know, it's like you decide what you're going to focus on and then get stuff done. And so the results, so it would be like two different coaching approaches, but, but the ultimate goal is that the client that we're coaching is getting the results that they want. And not everybody is going to be open to a coach telling them what to do. There are people who want that type of coaching. Absolutely. Right. They, they're stuck and they need somebody who's been there, done that, you know, got the got the paperwork or at least the tattoo from it, right? And and needs that needs that. And then there's other people who who actually know what they need to do. They're just not doing it. And and that's probably the the people that I help the most. I think that, by the way, it's right. You did not get a counseling certification, and no. neither did Darian nor I. <laughs> there are times right. when I feel like I am on this fine line, right? That I can see the that I can see the license I'm not practicing with in front of me. But for example, when I start, and Laura, you know my coaching style pretty well, that I 
I ask people to go on this little adventure with me. We, if I was coaching you, Darian, it would be called the, the Wheel of Darian. And I ask them to tell me about how Darian, Darian, how you operate in your family of origin, your chosen family, in your social land as an employer and as a supervisor. And it helps to be, for me, it's a lens by which I look through the kinds of things folks tell me about what they're struggling with or what their, you know, what their challenges are, whether it's about power or, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about in the, in the leadership lab is that partnerships are sort of core to nonprofits in a way that private, the private sector doesn't have that as core, Right. And so I like to know who somebody is as a partner, because if I know who they are as a partner, I have a pretty good sense of how they're going to be with their board chair or, you know, how they're going to see their organization and its dynamics. But there is a little bit, there's no question, you have to get inside somebody's head a little bit, right? If you were just a resource Darian, right? Here, do these five things, right? And you're not actually having a conversation built on trust and really understanding how this person really rolls in the world, like your advice is actually just going to just hit a wall, right? Don't you think? You know, I totally agree with that. I guess I uh, maybe the difference in my approach would be what I'm hearing from the two of you is it's a bit more front loaded to, to really orient to that client and get a sense of their disposition of how they show up in the world, et cetera. And mine, I think, happens more over time yeah. where it's because we're focused on more tactical and and tactics in support of overarching goals, which tend to be like, we really need to grow our revenue and, and expand fundraising. And I would love to have my board be much more deeply engaged and helpful with fundraising. And then as we start to get into it and talk about the upcoming meetings and the pitches they're preparing for, and we get into some of the philosophical side of what's the difference between institutional fundraising and individual donor fundraising, and it's really through the problem solving that I get to see how they show up when they talk about the conflicts yeah. with other members of their team, et cetera, where, you know, and, and I, I see your point that there's sort of like a forest for the trees and the trees for the forest. So you can kind of look through different lenses of the kaleidoscope. But yeah, mine, I think, is more iterative and evolves over time. Right. Good. So have either of you. So I've, you know, I vet my clients and I will turn down clients if I find that I I don't actually think, I can't take their money. <laughs> like, I don't think they're coachable. And I have some thoughts about that. But Darian, what makes somebody coachable or actually conversely, have you ever said no to somebody who's asked for coaching? Because you can kind of tell the person is not actually coachable? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple sort of things that are sort of non-starters for me. One is you know, Laura mentioned this earlier, like I, I've got a pretty unique style of coaching and I'm pretty upfront about, you know, this East Coast mentality and approach. And I put those cards on the table and that doesn't necessarily always work for folks. And sometimes they think it will work for them. And then we sort of try it on for size. And it's clear that that's not resonating and it's not moving their work forward. And I'm busy. I'd rather focus on other clients. So that's, you know, that that kind of compatibility side Another one where, you know, I, I've kind of basically a, a know-it-all kind of client that doesn't yeah. think they need help. And then I'm like, well, why am I here? You know, so if if they're not, if they don't have to agree with everything I say. They don't have to put it all into practice, but I would hope that they would at least consider it. Otherwise, we're wasting each other's time and we've both got things to do. So 
that's another one, you know, and then I think, I don't know if, if cursing's allowed, but I have a no asshole policy. Yes, so, cursing is allowed. Um, yeah, I mean, life's too short and I want to work with people that I admire, that I like, and that's part of why I do this work. Uh, and so if I feel like, if I'm not feeling that the personal connection with someone, and that, you know, there's a client right now where I got them funding to hire me and we started working together and it just wasn't, we were not compatible as people. And right. that was pretty clear right off the bat. So I'm actually hiring another coach to to work with her that she's had experience with and she knows she's comfortable with. And that's great. Ultimately, I just want to see the, the goals and the missions of my clients advanced. And that's yep. why I do this work. Yep. I, th- I would I would actually ditto almost everything you said and maybe also add that the or- organization's mission has to actually resonate for me because in order for me to be a compassionate truth teller, I have to really, I think of myself as working for that organization's mission and not necessarily for that client. So it allows me to say things that are harder than I might Mm -hmm. otherwise say. How about you, Laura? The uncoachable. Yeah, I was going to say that. Whatever he said, I agree. I don't, (laughs) well, you know, like you said, life's too short, right? I'm a little newer on the stage of all of this. And in the experience that I have had coaching, I can usually tell after the first conversation if it's something that I'm willing to put my time into. If, If this person is, like you said, coachable, I do not want to coach someone where we're talking about the same thing week in, week out, and nothing's being done. This is definitely about action and results. Yeah. And that's who, that's who I want to work with is somebody who, who actually, you know, sometimes they don't know what they want and you can help them figure it out. And then you set the goals and then you get the results. But if they're coming back, just, it's like the people who don't want to learn, like, like Darian mentioned, why are you here then? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't need the money that bad. Like, keep it. Right. And and you wonder in those situations, have they come to you for the right reasons? And I think right. that's something that's underpinning a lot of what Darian and I and you have said is yeah. in these situations, either I got a coach because I'm supposed to have one. You know, I've had, I've had arrogant client, you know, sort of vetting meetings where I was like, you know, it sounds like everything's going really well for you, dude. And I don't think you need a coach. So, you know, some of it is about what's actually motivating them to begin with. It reminds me of a philosophy I learned from a guy called, he did guerrilla marketing way back in the day. He wrote books and went out and spoke. And those are the clients that we refer to our competition. (laughs) Very good. Like figure out who, yeah, no. That's you, funny. You. <laughs> so we, we're having a conversation about coaching. I, I believe in coaching. I think everyone needs a coach, but everyone needs a good coach. And we're talking about different styles and, you know, sort of the, we were, we've been talking a little bit about sort of a more actionable, directive, prescriptive kind of coaching based on years of, you know, boots on the ground and then a different kind of coaching, more of a life coaching where someone is really trying to get at those underlying root causes of the things that lead them to make certain kinds of decisions over another and giving them the agency to to land on their own actions and solutions. It's all super interesting to me, and I hope it's actually interesting to all of you who are listening. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. 
Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Let's talk about how the nonprofit sector thinks about coaching. And Darian, I'll start with you. Do you think we're making headway in the world of boards and budgets and how the nonprofit sector, particularly those who have control of the purse strings, think about coaching. And I mean this plain and simply having a conversation with a search firm, and this was several years ago, and the search partner said to me, I can't actually place someone that I have found for this organization. I have told them that this person is an absolute rock star. And then I'm going to suggest that that person have a coach, right? Is that person really a rock star? Am I really a good search consultant? And that's how I felt about it or how the landscape felt to me several years ago. And I wonder if you experience that, if you see any shift in how coaching is perceived by the sector. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. I mean, I think you bring up a few points. I, I think in general, we have been growing a generation of nonprofit and social change leaders. And so in as much as those people have developed experience, they are not making the same mistakes over and over again. One of the biggest problems, especially when you compare the nonprofit sector to the business world, where I, I started my career you know, decades ago, is that we are really fragmented. And at least for the startups, you know, most people who are just entering the sector and starting an organization, like they're passionate, they have this idea, they want to change the world. But what they're not doing, which would get you laughed out of the room if you shared a business plan without a competitive analysis, is they're not looking at the landscape to see who else is out there, what are they doing, how am I different, where are we going to add unique value? And so as a result, we have a really fragmented sector where you've got, you know, four Baptist churches right on each corner of an intersection, and people aren't as aware of what else is being done and and benefiting from those lessons learned. So I, I do think that that problem is perpetuated and continues to pop up. And, you know, boards and, and fundraising are always at the top of the list of frustrations. I think from a standpoint of coaching and back to the story about the search firm, I don't think we're, we as a sector are thinking about it enough. Mm -hmm. And specifically for me, I saw something way back about 20 years ago, Haas Jr. Fund, you know, put out a study called Daring to Lead in 2000. Yeah, I remember it. I remember Yeah, and it changed my life because what that study found, and they've done a few updates and iterations since then, what it found was that at the time, a lot of people were talking about the baby boomers getting older and the leadership vacuum. And, yep. but you know, what it found was that 50%, half of executive directors were leaving not only their jobs, but the sector within five years and fundraising and boards were at the top of the reasons that they were frustrated around. And specifically the part of the conclusion was coaching was the number one, most cost-effective way to keep leaders in their roles and keep them engaged and supported. And I think it's because we're fragmented that there oftentimes can be a sense of loneliness. And is there anybody else out there that shares this passion, that cares as much about pushing this rock up the hill as I do? 
And a coach can really offer you that emotional support, but also some problem solving and that sounding board, you know, along with the tips and tools. And so that's what really got me into it, especially with the focus on on fundraising and boards. And I, I think that that still remains the case. And I don't think as many groups out there are, you know, really thinking about coaching as part of their retention strategy and as part of that executive support, but it is more popular than it was. And certainly the field has expanded in a pretty big way. And I'm I'm not the only nonprofit coach I know. I know a bunch of other folks well, doing this act- work and we're all pretty busy. There are actually three of them right here. So that we, yeah, know, exactly. we didn't know, we know at least two others. <laughs> Laura, what do you think? Is coaching still seen as a sign of weakness or is it seen mm-hmm. as a luxury item? You know, so yeah, what's your, what's your take on based on, based, yeah, based on your experience? Yeah, for sure. All of the above, I think. And yet there's also a very strong movement to educate people that it's actually a sign of strength, not weakness. That strong. And I think that's where, you know, like Brene Brown has come in to speak a lot of power into this in that being vulnerable, you know, admitting when you don't know something or admitting when you're stuck, like facing the facts is actually a very courageous act. And so there's a lot of destigmatizing that's happening right now through through books and social media. And the more people who are working on themselves and getting great results because of their work with a coach is just, it's like evidence Absolutely. For, for the impact. I'll put the link in the show notes, but there was an article in the New Yorker, an East Coast publication, I might add. And it was, uh, oh, the name of the author is on the tip of my tongue. But he is a surgeon, and he wrote this piece about the fact that he was in his late 50s or early 60s, and he was afraid that he was losing his edge. And so he hired a retired surgeon to come and watch him in the operating room and point out ways that either he had you know, things that he had done really well or things he should be doing differently. And it was almost like a kind of a chiropractic experience for him. But it made him a much better surgeon and retooled him in many, many ways. And I often send that when clients come and say, I'm going to have to make this pitch for this funding. Do you have anything that makes the argument for why coaching for someone who's really strong is a good idea? And I think we could probably use a little bit more marketing on that because I do find, (laughs) and I don't know, Darian, I know you've been doing this kind of coaching for a long time where boards will say, go get a coach in a remedial fashion. And that's a, that's a client I will not take, right? If somebody's like on a performance improvement plan and the board has said, you need to get a coach. And if it doesn't get fixed, we're going to have to make a different call. Like that's, that's not coaching for me. That's remediation. That's not the journey that I actually plan, think about taking my clients on. I wonder if you've had that experience, if you would take on a client where there was a sort of a remediation component to it. I mean, I, I haven't really, for the most part, I've, most of my gigs have come directly from the executive director and they felt like this could be helpful. But at the same time, like if a board, you know, if there was a performance improvement plan, like I would be open to that. I mean, I think it's a bit of a different use case, right? Like you you write a lot and talk a lot about thriving nonprofits, about thriving leaders and superheroes. So like you can give me a super high performing client 
and spinal tap style, like I can help them turn it up to 11. And if they're 10% more effective or productive, like that's a huge boost to productivity, to revenue, to engagement, you know, and advancing their mission. Then again, like I, I would be, and I have worked with folks who are much earlier on their journey who really, you know, don't even know the ABCs about nonprofit leadership. And I'm able to, you know, help them advance their work by by exponentially in short order if they're, you know, good students and open-minded and, and all those things we talked about before. So I could see how that dynamic could be dysfunctional. And if there's huge animosity and there's a yeah. lot of finger pointing, that kind of scenario is not of interest to me. But if it is genuinely someone, I have clients now who it's like, First time executive director, kind of totally. don't know what they're doing and building the plane while flying it, yep. but hungry to learn, committed to the mission, and are willing to, you know, to take some pointers. And the board has played a role in saying, like, we would like to help you level up, and they're yep. excited to do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll work with those people all day long. Yeah, totally. You probably do. A couple of other questions I want to get in before we close. Laura, I'm going to throw this one to you. And then, Darian, if you, you can either ditto or add attributes of a great coach. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Joan. I think I I was thinking about this because one of the resources that you have in the lab is about attributes and competencies for when you're looking for new board members. And I think it really is helpful not to just see the word coach and assume that means anything. You want to find the kind of coach who's going to resonate with you, a coach who really motivates you to accomplish your goals and holds you accountable for what you're going to say, but does it with compassion. So, you know, you want someone that is compassionate. You want someone who can hold some neutral space for you without judgment, someone who will help you look at look at what's going on. Well, for me, it's looking at your thoughts and sorting through the crap and kind of figuring things out. And I also just want to say, I think it's critical that your coach has a good sense of humor. And I know you would agree with that. Like you have to be able to laugh together. And to me, thinking about this reminded me like the season, the new season of Ted Lasso season three just started. Yes. And, you know, the the dynamic that you see between Ted Lasso and his team that he's coaching and Nate Shelley and the team that he's coaching is the, they're both coach, like in the show, you know, this fictional show, they're both coaches of great teams but how they interact with their teams is a reflection on their coaching style. Totally. And I think it's, it's, you don't just want to get a coach, just any old coach, right? You yep. want to do your research. And and like with Darian, if you get somebody and it's not a good fit, you find somebody else. You don't give up on coaching. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Darian, anything you would add on attributes of a great coach? Yeah. I mean, I I guess, first of all, as a disclaimer, I should probably lead off by saying, I admit I'm a little judgy and and I'm upfront (laughs) about that with my clients. And that doesn't mean I can't do it with love and with compassion and with support, but they'll tell me some things and I'll say like, I think that's a horrible mistake. And here's why. (laughs) Here's what I would recommend instead. Right. So, so it is definitely a very different approach, but to the question, I think, you know, the common thread that connects effective and, and good coaches in my mind are a couple things. Number one, I, I feel like the the single question that we as a sector do not ask and ask ourselves and answer enough is what does success look like? Right. right? Like, how do we dream our dreams with open eyes and make them come true? And so, you know, being in clear communication about what are we trying to achieve here 
And what does success look like? That is totally critical no matter what your style is. I also think it's really you know, crucial that a coach meets their clients where they're at. Um, whether that's emotionally, whether that's in the life cycle of their nonprofit or their career, you know, even though I am judgy and even though I am prescriptive and, and directive, one of the things that I heard that that has been crucial for me is, you know, the importance of learning how to disagree agreeably mm-hmm. and being able to point things out where you are able to intelligently take issue with something, but do it in a way that still feels supportive, that still feels, you know, compassionate. And then, you know, the the final thing I would say, I touched on this earlier, is I personally believe it's really important that there are no walls and that, the you know, like part of what I love about this sector is that we show up as our full selves. And so the notion of like, I'm only here to talk to you about your job or about fundraising or whatever it might be, I don't think it can really work that way because right. we bring our personal relationships and, you know, trauma or or whatever's going on in our life into this work. And so at times you have to be able to sort of cross the boundary and, and work with people on other aspects of who they are as people. Yeah, I'm, it is the was one of the big aha moments for me when I crossed the bridge from the private sector to the public, to the nonprofit sector is, oh, I get to be my whole three-dimensional self and my team expects Mm -hmm. me to see them that way. One last question, I think, and then we'll wrap up. And I'll I'll start with Darian here. It's really, has been an interesting evolution for me that a disproportionate percentage of my coaching clients currently are people of color. To some extent, because I am known to have an expertise in working with new CEOs following long-tenured folks, and more and more organizations are recruiting diverse candidates, right? So there are more boards who are mindful of the diversity of their of the candidates they're selecting. So it may be that my sweet spot aligns. What have you learned about the nonprofit sector as you coach leaders of color or folks from marginalized communities? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think I work a lot, not only with leaders of color, but also with women. And I feel like there's a lot of commonalities between the two. You see a lot of nonprofits with a, a lot of staffers or constituents, clients who are people of color or women. But then when you get to the leadership level, you don't see that same kind of diversity reflecting the communities we serve. It's obviously very different from person to person. I feel like this kind of goes back to some of the stuff that Laura was talking about, about, you know, agency and voice. And and there's, with the work I've done, and a lot of the times I'll pull women and, and people of color into larger consulting gigs, I, I find that having validation, that encouragement, and and really providing leaders with a platform to feel more confident about their assertions, about their beliefs, and and that's a lot of times where that sounding board can come in really handy. Is yeah. to your point about the surgeon, it's like you are doing exactly the right thing, and that that is, I think, a, a critical element. I, I think one of the other issues, especially as it relates to fundraising or as it relates to sort of business development in the consulting sense is being comfortable sort of not just fundraising for a cause, but selling yourself, if you will. That's another barrier that I've seen for people that, you know, historically haven't had the same cycles of wealth and opportunity. That's something that where they they most benefit from having that support. I think those are kind of the the two things that come up most. Reflections, Laura, on this one? Yeah, I was just thinking about a book Edgar Villanueva wrote called Decolonizing Wealth. 
and the work of Vule in the sector. And that for, for me in my approach, it's going to be a lot of listening um, because of being a white woman. And so again, I think for my personal approach, it's, it's really teasing out from the client what's going on and, and, and listening and trusting with their lived experience. So I will add to my own question and say that I am learning through some of particularly my sort of what I call badass black women leaders that I coach, that asking for a coach, not everyone, but I have heard from a couple of my clients that black women leaders are reluctant to ask for coaches for some of the reasons that we've talked about for other people, but it's heightened. And I'd say the second thing is as we move forward, we are just going to have to be so much more mindful that we're hiring badass people of color to run organizations that have not done their work and that the culture in those organizations, the systems in those Mm -hmm. organizations are Mm -hmm. broken and they are setting these badass leaders up to fail. And you know, until we actually sort of get our arms around that, search firms do not have the Willy Wonka golden ticket. So I just think it's interesting because, like I said, my sweet spot is new CEOs following long-tenured folks or new CEO, CEOs that are at some big inflection point. And this all fits into that. And that's as a result, I end up um, talking with a lot of leaders of color. And the, th- the things we've talked about this afternoon are are exponentially heightened for leaders of color. And I think it's something that we as a sector actually have to sort of really look in the mirror and take a hard look at. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely yeah. right that people like Vu and others are shedding a light on that in a way that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing you're touching on really briefly is the need for different kinds of leadership in different settings. So if you're, you know, a white male showing up in an organization that is serving people of color with a staff largely led by people of color, it may very well be the case you should be leading from behind and practicing right. service-based leadership as mm-hmm. opposed to leading out front. Uh, and on the contrary, if you're a woman and it's a, you know, women's rights organization and female, largely female staff, like, great, you know, you're the, the tip of the spear. And so uh, helping people figure out what's appropriate and also showing up yourself in, in ways that are appropriate mm-hmm. and supportive. I love uh, that. Really I love that. Can I just say, yeah. I would, I yeah. would probably love to coach that white man. <laughs> that, that would be a wonderful experience. Well, yeah. I hope you get that opportunity, my friend. So we have had the pleasure and the privilege of listening to Darian rodriguez Heyman and Laura Zelke. And I loved this conversation. I learned a lot about, you know, my coaching style is very sort of built from the ground up and it generally works pretty well. But it's been very enriching to listen to each of you talk about how you approach it and your styles. So first, let me just say, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for the work you're doing in the sector. Thank you for sharing your voices this afternoon. Darian, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And Laura, I I know what a pleasure you are from long, (laughs) lots of long tenure. So thank you too for being with us. Well, thank you for allowing me to be here. And I'm excited to see, you know, what comes of this. I hope that if there's somebody out there who hasn't considered getting a coach, 
that maybe this is a little appetizer and maybe you'll check it out and see if maybe, you know, what what was the title of your podcast? Uh, Everyone Needs a Coach? I think it's Everyone Needs a Coach. It might get changed in the editing, who knows, but... I think everyone needs a coach. I think kids need a coach, actually. Grown kids need a coach. I'll leave you with this one last thing is that my eldest daughter once upon a time referred to me as the might in our family, not as it relates to power, but because she recognized that one of the words I used most commonly was, you know what you might want to think about? Now, she didn't actually, she heard it as quite prescriptive, but it is probably a word I often use in coaching, actually. So anyway, hope this gave you some food for thought about what coaching could be for you. Maybe evaluate the coach you currently have and if it's, you know, that person is suiting your needs. But think Darian is right. These are lonely jobs. You know it. We know it. And having an honest broker on your team is never a bad thing. And it's not a luxury item. Until next time, this is Joan, and I just want to say, as always, thanks for the great work you do. Take good care of yourself. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.